Again, excited to continue our study through the book of Judges. We are in Judges chapter 16 and 17 this evening. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Stephen's up. He's got a few in his hands. He'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. We want to be uh, praying for uh, Susie Summers. Uh, she went into the hospital on Sunday with an infection, and so um, uh, she's still there and down in Cox South, and so we want to be praying for a quick healing for her. Uh, Susie comes usually first service. If you don't know, she's the one in the wheelchair, the electric wheelchair, and a few people in the wheelchair. You've got to be specific about wheelchairs around here. <laughs> but uh, uh, I want to go ahead and pray for her tonight before we begin as we get into God's Word. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight and this opportunity that you've given to us to gather together as your church and to be able to open up your word and know, Lord, that you're going to speak to our hearts. What an excitement that is, Lord, to know that whenever we gather together, you're here in our midst and you're teaching us and instructing us of your ways. Lord, we want to lift up Susie to you, Lord, and pray that you'd touch her, that you'd heal her body of this infection. Give the doctors wisdom in treating her, Lord, knowing exactly what's going on with her body. And we pray that you'd get her back here quick to us, Lord. She's such a blessing to our fellowship. And just pray your blessing on her. Bring your comfort and peace, we pray. And now, Lord, as we look at uh, uh, your word tonight, we just ask your blessing, Lord, that we would uh, not only gain information but application in our lives of what to do, what not to do, Lord, as we uh, live this life that you've, you've called us to live. And so thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we saw in our study raw animal passion, a lion attack, a stag party, a nag and a heifer. That was all last week. And there can only be one character in the Bible that all that fits to, and that's Samson, of course. But this evening we come to the chapter that Samson is most remembered for, and it is the story of Samson and Delilah. Now, you don't usually hear too many girls, you know, named Delilah, and, and we'll see why tonight, you know. Even when it comes to the name Samson, you know, I don't think I've ever met anybody named Samson, maybe a, a big dog, you know, the name of Dog Samson or something like that, but not children. But remember there's a secular song out in 2006 called Hey There, Delilah. Remember that one? Hey there, Delilah, what's it like in New York City? A thousand miles away, but girls look so pretty. But then, uh, then you know, the rest of you know, but then the chorus, you really, really, you know, took a lot of time in, in writing the chorus out. Oh, it's what you do to me. 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 What you do to me. <laughs> Obviously blaming Delilah on what she does to him. But we all know, if we're familiar with the story, the blame is in the wrong place. Because the truth of what we'll see tonight is what Samson is doing, he's doing to himself as he gives in to his flesh. And gives into the temptations of his flesh. Now the good news is we'll see is that God will still use Samson in spite of himself to judge the Philistines. And that's what this is all about. Bringing judgment against the Philistines and delivering Israel. But it's going to cost Samson his life. Now, we all know that he took a Nazarite vow even before birth. You know, the angel of the Lord or the Lord came to his mom and said, listen, we want him to have a Nazarite vow. And which meant that they were to stay away from, you know, touching any dead animal. They were not to drink of the, the vine, and that included, you know, grape juice, wine, and that he was not to cut his hair. Well, as we begin chapter 16, he's already got two strikes against him. We know that. 
He touched the lion that he killed, you know, to get the honey out of it. He drank wine at his celebration of his wedding, and tonight it's going to be strike three with his haircut. Now, if you look back at Samson's life, and if you look at the, the story in a whole, you'll see that the, what he struggled with is what we all struggle with. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The lust of the eyes, you know, he saw a Philistine woman, you know, we saw last time, not Delilah, but, but this was a woman, woman from the city of Timnah. In fact, he told his parents in, in chapter 14, verse 2, I've seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines, now therefore get her for me as a wife. The lust of the eyes, I have seen, now, now get her for me, I, I want this lust, I have to have it. Now, with, with their much disapproval, they went ahead and got her for him. And, and, and then we could say that the lust of the flesh was his desire for that honey. He'd go back to the animal, even though he knew he shouldn't have touched the dead lion, but he wanted that honey, the lust of his flesh. Then the pride of life. You remember he proposed a little riddle to his, you know, the groomsman there. And his, 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 you know, he's about to get married. He was so prideful. He thought he could trick them and not give them a wedding gift and brag also about the lion that he killed all in one shot. Now we know how it ended. The wedding feast ended with his new wife betraying his riddle to the invited guest. And, and, uh, but we see the same things that we struggle with daily. The lust of the, the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we don't have to give any of those things as Samson did. We know 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 tells us, No temptation is taken, but as such as is coming to man. But God is not tempted, but, but, we, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, make a way that you can escape that you may be able to bear it. We remember studying Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. Jesus, you know, resisting temptation through using the Word of God. But Samson, he, he really wasn't looking to resist temptation. I mean, the, the lust was strong in his eyes. Now, now Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now Samson's, obviously, is, is written so for us what not to do. Now remember also last time from our last study, while Samson was off in a furious rage hacking up the Philistines, his wife, who he had called a heifer, was then given to his best man in verse 20 of chapter 14. Samson finally cools down, but then you might say he heats back up again, Goes back to the wife there that he called names and you know wants to you know have relations with. Who shows up with a gift? Here's a goat. You know, let's have sex type of thing. And 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 uh, you know the father-in-law says, hold on a minute. You know, we thought you hated her. You don't want anything to do with her. So we we you know uh, here take take her to your sister. She married someone else. Well, then he gets mad all over again. So he remember he grabbed the foxtails or we looked at the jackals, tied them together, set them on fire, and threw them into the Philistines, you know, crops. You know, all the while the Philistines are being judged all along this whole trip. You know, I mean, God said He wanted to judge the Philistines. Here it is, but He's just using uh, Samson's anger and 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 you know his attitude to to take care of it. And uh, and so again, in, in spite of Samson's self-centeredness and selfishness, he, God's using him to bring judgment against the Philistines. Uh, and then, you know, uh, Samson agrees to let the tribe of Judah tie him up and take him to the Philistines. They want to get, they want to get him. So he says, all right, you know, if you don't kill me first, then, then you can tie me up and take me to the Philistines. Chapter 15, verse 14, we read, Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out of his hand, and took it and killed a thousand men with it. 
Now the idea, we talked about this after last service, or last time we looked at this, the idea of a fresh jawbone, possibly he killed the donkey to get the fresh jawbone. I mean, it's a fresh jawbone. So he, he does this miraculous thing, kill all these men, and, and, and he finally, you know, at the end of chapter 15, he's worked up a thirst, cries out to the Lord, Oh Lord, I'm thirsty, and the Lord provides him some water. That was a good point in his life, reaching out to the Lord, seeking the Lord, going, yeah, Lord, I, I need you. And we close last week in verse 20 of chapter 15, speaking of Samson, and he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. He realized his humanity and helplessness with a simple absence of water, called the Lord, calls to the Lord for provision. Even though Samson uh, reacted in his flesh, he still had a love for the Lord. He wanted to judge for 20 years, relatively peaceful years. Samson gave God the glory. Uh, and we hesitate to say it because it almost sounds like we're, we're condoning his sin, but, but we're not. We just can't pour the baby out with the bath water. Samson was a man used mightily by God and who was singled out in the New Testament as one of the giants of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So now we come to chapter 16. Look at verse 1. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. You know, at this point in Samson's life, he should have gone, note to self, don't go to Gaza. Or any place else for that matter that you, that you might be tempted. Don't go to places in your mind where you might be plotting and planning to sin. Don't put you in a place where you know that you have an area of weakness in your life. Listen, if you're trying to lose weight, don't apply uh, at Krispy Kreme Donuts for a job. That's not going to help you any. We're told in, in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee sexual immorality. Everything that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Samson's going forward, and, and remember, his downfall is the, the desire for women. Look at verse 2 now. When the Gazites were told Samson has come, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying, in the morning, when it's daylight, we will kill him. You think that they would learn as well. Verse 3, and Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gateposts, pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. So again, Samson's desire for women surfaces while he's spending the night with a prostitute. The Philistines and Gaza locked the gates of the city so they can ambush him in the morning. Let's lock him in. Uh, tonight, and then we'll get him in the morning. Really. So Samson, in the middle of the night, uh, wakes up, he's empowered by the Spirit, pulls up their gates that they, that they shut, and walks right through their ambush. Not only that, he walks a distance of 38 miles with a 3,000 foot rise in elevation, carrying these heavy gates to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Uh, again, remember, this is the power of the Lord coming upon him to do these feats of strength to deliver Israel from the Philistines. This was judgment on the Philistines. Now, as I said before, I don't really think that he was this built, you know, Chris Hemsworth Thor, you know, maybe uh, some other guy you can think of that's got all the, the muscles, you know, because as we see, you know, the, the Delilah, the Philistines are going to try and find out what his source of strength is. If this guy was 6'8 and, you know, full 300 pounds and all muscle, you'd go, well, we see your strength. You're a big guy. You're full of muscle. But they're wondering why he's so strong. So I, I still, in my mind, I picture this wimpy guy that all of a sudden the power of the Lord comes upon him and he does these amazing things. Well, verse 4. Afterward it happened that he loved a woman in the Valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. 
And you can hear the music in the background go, dun, dun, dun. And this is the, su- the summary, really, of the story of Samson's downfall in his life, his bi- biggest weakness. He loved women. Now, one of the greatest sins that can cause many men's lives to be destroyed is the same thing. You know, it's that, 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 that lust, you know, for women, illicit sex, sexual immorality. But understand, like Samson, no man falls suddenly into sin. He does it gradually. Perhaps, you know, maybe hitting a website on the internet and all of a sudden seeing something there and before long the flesh has risen up and now the strong desire to, 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 to go further with your flesh. James puts it this way in James 1, 14 and 15. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. This was Samson's path to full-blown sin. He loved a woman named Delilah, and as far as we know, he made no attempt to marry her. We don't read any of that. Verse 5. And the Lord of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him, find out where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him, and every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Listen, temptation comes to us in attractive packages, and no doubt Delilah was very attractive. Now, she's being tempted to take money, you know, for this. But, but the other way around, you know, the Philistines, they're not hiring an ugly girl, you know, that needs an extreme makeover. You know, they're finding this girl who's beautiful, you know, that, to, to tempt Samson. She's an attractive woman, and Samson wanted her very much. They, this eventually lured him into sin. And again, the same thing can happen to us. When sin comes to us, often we're not tempted by something ugly. Something we perceive as destructive, but something we view as desirable and good and something we review, we view it as fulfilling. It's alluring. This last uh, pastor's conference I was at, Ryan Reese, Raul Reese's son, was talking about being tempted in the ministry and guys that are pastors and, you know, falling you know, to this temptation. He said, he said this quote, you are not that good looking of a guy to have a beautiful girl come on to you. It's the devil out to destroy you in your ministry. I thought, well, it makes sense, you know. <laughs> and so, and so uh, I mean, what kind of temptation would it be if Satan presented it in a way that's reality? We'd never give in to it. Hey, if you give in to this temptation, it'll ruin your life and it'll ruin your family and you, you'll never speak to your children again. And how about it? Are you interested? I would never do it. But he's sly, just like in the Garden of Eden and in Genesis 3, where the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. And, 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 and she took the fruit, and she also gave it to her husband with her, and they ate. Just the temptation, you know, just, just looking at it. Exactly what's going on here. Satan puts his poison in the middle of a sirloin steak and invites you out for dinner. So verse 6. So Delilah said to Samson, Please, Tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. <laughs> and Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, yet not dried, then I should become weak and be like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought up, her to, brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, and she bound him with them. Now men were lying in wait, staying with her in the room, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he broke the bowstrings that as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. So we see the first, first step here. Delilah, you know, is probing the secret of his strength. And, and, and Samson should have been aware of what's going on. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty blatant right there, you know. And, and, and he should have, like Joseph, just fled, you know, as fast as he could run. 
But passion had, had gripped him. Sin had, had anesthetized him and, and he was unable to act rationally. Anybody could have told him that Delilah was making a fool out of him, but he never would have listened because he, he valued his relationship with Delilah more than listening to what is right and, and it blinded him by sin. And he was prideful in all of this. He thought, it's no big deal. I can mess around and play with this. It's, what is, it's not going to harm anything. He's playing this game with Delilah. It's going to turn out to be Russian roulette and he's going to lose it in big time. But he's, he's also playing a game with God and compromising. Listen, don't play games with God because sooner or later you'll lose. Verse 10. Then Delilah said to Samson, Look, you have mocked me and told me lies. Now please tell me what you may be bound with. So he said to her, If they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I should become weak and be like any other man. Therefore Delilah took new ropes and bound them with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And men were lying in wait, staying in the room, but he broke off them with arms like a thread. So now he consents to being bound, thinking he could break free at any time. And, and then, again, this is how sin fools us. We dabble with it, thinking we're handling it, not realizing we're becoming a slave to it. Verse 13, Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of the loom, so she wove it tightly with the baton of the loom and, and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he woke from his sleep and pulled out the bat, bat, baton, baton and, and the web from the loom. So Samson may have even invented dreadlocks here. I, I don't know. But, but can you imagine how ridiculous he looked? Or the time it would have taken to untangle the mess in his hair. Yet for the first time, he mentioned something that at least connected with the source of his power. It's not the, the hair itself. It's the Nazarite vow to never cut his hair. Well, weaving isn't, isn't cutting it, but Samson's getting closer and closer to total slavery to sin, all the while he's thinking he can walk away at any time. Yet you would think by now that Samson would be getting a little suspicious. If every time I woke up and was tied up with cords, wrapped in ropes, or my hair was in dreadlocks, that I would start thinking, something's going on here. One author puts it this way, self-confidence blinds us to reality. I like it the way I put it. Sin makes you stupid. Um, verse 15, then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? Oh, you can just hear the violins. You have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. Pestered day in and day out that we read he wanted to die. His soul was vexed to death. I wonder if that's where you get the phrase, you're going to pester me to death, which, which ironically happened to Samson. Now, I can't pass up this verse without cross-referencing it with Proverbs 27:15. A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. I'm just saying it because we see it here in Scripture, so don't come after me and talk to me, but... Day after day, day after day, night after day, Sammy, come on, tell me, Samson, you don't love me. Sam, come on, tell me what's going on. It's like, okay, fine, woman. And, and, and look at verse 17. So he told her all his heart and said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I should become weak and be like any other man. 
Oscar Wilde once wrote, I can resist anything except temptation. Seems to be the story of Samson's life. Listen, listen, Samson didn't fall because the temptation was too strong, nor did he fall because the temptation was inescapable. Samson fell because he played around with sin until he finally gave in. One commentator from the, back from the 1800s put it this way, Samson, when brave, strangled a lion, but he could not strangle his own love. He burst the fetters of his foes, but not the cords of his own lusts. He burned the crops of others and lost the fruit of his own virtue when burning with the flame enkindled by a single woman. Focused on, on living for the flesh, desiring the things of the flesh, not living for the Spirit, to the point where, where he's blinded to his own sin. Well, it goes on. Look at verse 18. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his, all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he's told me all his heart. So the lord of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hand. Then she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he woke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Finally, he compromised too much. Final symbol of his sanctification unto God was God. Philistine shaved his head, strike three, he's out. I think that verse 20 is among the most sorrowful passages of all of Scripture. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. The Lord had left him. The Spirit of God was not there to supernaturally strengthen him. And worst of all, he did not know it. Folks, we need to be aware that we can fall in that same trap. We can harden ourselves with, with sin so much in our lives that we no longer feel or sense God's presence anymore in our lives. We can choke out the conviction and voice of God so, so we, we don't hear him anymore. We're told this by the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 3, verse 12 through 15. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. What it is said today, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in, in the rebellion. May our hearts not get hardened. May we repent even at this very moment and cry out to the Lord to forgive our sins and soften our hearts. May we plead to restore a right relationship with Him before we find ourselves in a similar situation. Well, the next verse really puts sin into perspective. Look at verse 21. Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters and he became a grinder in the prison. See what sin does? Sin blinds, binds, and grinds. First it blinds. Long before the Philistines put out his eyes, Samson was blind to the consequences of his sin. Secondly, sin binds. It holds captive. People are held captive by sin. And thirdly, sin grinds. I think maybe, you know, maybe that's where we get the, the, the phrase of, of life being a grind. And this is where the expression comes from. Samson was just going around in circles day after day, eyes poked out, uh, you know, no different than an ox you know, and an animal. Now, people would like you to believe that sin frees you to become better, but the opposite is true. Sin reduces us to the level of an animal. However, however, here's the good news. God's grace is always enough. Look at verse 22. However, the hair of his head began to grow again 
after it had been shaven. <laughs> you think, note to the jailer, keep Samson shaved. <laughs> they don't do that. I mean, don't, don't you think it's strange that they didn't keep him bald? You know, okay, Samson, time for your hourly haircut. But they didn't. You know, they probably thought that because Samson had sinned, God was, was through with him. Now, to their downfall, they didn't believe Samson's God would restore him and use him. You know, I think we're sometimes like that. Someone sins and they've repented, but we somehow think that God can never really use them anymore. Listen, God is a God of second chances and third chances and umpteen chances. All we have to do is look to Scripture and see that. Peter denying the Lord three times that God restored Peter. I'm not saying we take grace lightly, but, but, we, but we see how really strong it is. God can restore any of us. And although Samson was forgiven, there was a time that he was out of ministry, you might say, a time when he spent a season of grinding, facing the natural consequences of his sin. But God was about to use him all over again mightily. Look at verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. When the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land. And the one who multiplied our dead. In other words, our God's better than your God was their chant. Oh yeah? Verse 25. So it happened, when the hearts were merry, that they said, call for Samson, that he may perform for us. So they called for Samson from the prison, and he performed for them. And they stationed him between the pillars. Then Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, let me fill the pillars which support the temple so that I can lean on them. Now the temple is full of men and women, all the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof watching while Samson performed. Now, obviously, Samson's hair has returned. Then his heart for God now is hope in God. Look at verse 28. The power of God comes back on his life. Then Samson called to the Lord, saying, O oh Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray. Just this once, O oh God, that I may be with one blow, take vengeance on the Philistines from my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle, pil- middle pillars which supported the temple, and he braced himself against them, one on his right and the other on his left. Then Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the lords and, and on the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he killed in his life. And his brothers and all his father's household came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol and the tomb of his father Manoah. He had judged Israel twenty years. Listen, the story of Samson reminds us that you can start out strong and finish poorly. You can start out weak but finish strong. But you know, I say better yet, start out strong and finish strong as you depend upon the Lord to strengthen you and, and, and instead of depending upon our own strength. I want to give you a couple of thoughts about Samson's death here. Num- number one, was it suicide? People ask me that all the time. Was it suicide? Well, not really, because he was involved in a struggle against God's enemies, a, a battle in which life could be lost. So I don't want to say that it's suicide. It, it's, it's selfish and awful, but, but, but uh, you know, suicide is not an, an unpardonable sin. Secondly, it's been suggested by some that Samson didn't need to die, that God would have delivered him in his life if he had asked for it. Well, it's something we can't prove or disprove. We don't know. But again, as I said already, it's interesting that so often people feel as though they cannot really be used by God anymore once they've sinned. And that's a lie, because when God uh, forgives, God forgives completely. Now, people will not step out to be used by God, and that's only because they're allowing their hearts to condemn them. And, and that shouldn't be. 
John tells us in 1 John 3.20, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. In fact, he said in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And of course, Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. So we repent. God can use us again in a mighty way. Thus ends the story of Samson. Now we come to chapter 17. Now we all know what God wanted for Israel, and that was for it to be a theocracy, that God would rule as king and that they would seek him daily. His word, the law, would govern that society. But the people preferred to do their own thing. If the people would have just forsaken their idols, if the elders of Israel had consulted God's law and obeyed it for God's glory, Israel would have been governed successfully and powerfully. But instead, we will read of a society filled with competition and confusion. James says it well in James 3.16, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. And that's where we're going to start seeing chapter 17. See, for the last 16 chapters, the focus was on those that the Lord raised up to deliver Israel, the judges. Uh, you know, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and even as we've seen Samson. But as we begin, you know, really the, these last few chapters of the book of Judges, the emphasis changes. These stories are recorded for us to teach us that what happens when we turn away from the authority of God's word and turn to some kind of religious, humanistic philosophy. We try and, and mix things together. A verse which is repeated twice in these chapters is the key to not only this section of Scripture, but really the entire book of Judges. Uh, Chapter 17, verse 6, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the Lord's giving us examples in the next few chapters as we get to them. Three in particular. It begins in chapter 17 with a man named Micah. Then later on, a self-appointed priest named Jonathan and the whole tribe of Dan. They all thought that they were doing right in their own eyes, yet it was a society filled with violence, idolatry, gross immorality, total uh, paganism, but they thought they, they, were, they were doing what is right. That's what makes this book so practical for us. We also live in the same time where our society has no standards. You know, the philosophy of our day, if it's right for you, then it must be okay. Moral relativism. It's that, that saying that morality is determined by the culture, by society. And they say, well, because society is continuing changing, there's no absolute right or wrong. Again, verse 6, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, you can be sure society is headed for destruction. Now we start off with a man named Micah. Now this is not Micah the prophet that told of Jesus' birth, but Micah, a man from Ephraim. He starts off in verse 1 by ripping off his own mom. Look at verse 1. Now there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you, on which you put a curse, even saying it is my ears, here's the silver with me. I, I took it. And his mother said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my son. Now, someone had stolen 1,100 shekels of silver from Micah's mom. Now, this was no small amount. A priest, a full-time priest, would make about 10 shekels of silver a year. So this is a huge amount. She discovers that it's missing. She pronounces this curse on whoever took it. Well, Micah heard this, and, and seeing how he was a thief and really didn't want to be cursed, he admits he stole it and he gives the money back to his mom. Now, it seems somewhat of a common practice in the Old Testament to pronounce blessings or curses, but we shouldn't think of it as some kind of hex or spell or some voodoo curse, but something that was just more superstitious than anything else. 
Michael was a very superstitious man, and so was his mother. And that's what happens when you, when you don't know God, you don't rely on, on God's word and God's promises. People get all superstitious. You know, they look to horoscopes and fortune cookies and for answers. Now, at the same time, when it comes to what we say and putting curses on people, I think we can kind of fall into the same trap. You know, it's not, oh, may you always trip when you walk through a door. It's not something like that. You know, I don't like you. But, but how often do we say, well, I hope they get what's coming to them. You know, well, they deserve it. I hope they really suffer. Listen, that shouldn't be our desire for anybody, you know. The Bible tells us that low corrupt communication come out of our mouths. We're to speak as if we're, we're the oracles of God to use speech that's seasoned with grace. Well, here we see that mom was happy, her money was returned, but it's interesting what her reaction is. Because as far as we can tell, Michael was not disciplined in any way for his actions. The seriousness of what he's done was overlooked. I think for some parents today, they are too quick to excuse their children's bad behavior. Oh, that's just the way they are. They didn't mean anything by it. Oh, they didn't get much sleep last night. Or, or you know, who are you to tell me my child does anything wrong? And we have a society of kids that no matter what wrong they do, they're never disciplined for it. And as with the case of Mike, he not only rips off his mom of, 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 of a year's wages, but mom turns to him and says, Oh, that's okay, honey. May you be blessed by the Lord, my son. How could she say that? Well, because she was a thief too, just like her son. Look at verse 3. So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. Thus he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels of silver, gave them to the silversmith, and he made it into a carved image and a molded image that they were in the house of Micah. So there was 1,100 shekels of silver stolen. He gives it back to mom. Mom says, okay, I'm going to give it to the Lord. She takes 200 of it for the idols and gives them to Micah. What happened to the other 900? Promise to the Lord. See, I think one of the saddest things of our time is the fact that parents are no longer teaching true values to their children. Their kids steal even from them. They receive no correction, no discipline. The reason is it starts in the home. You know, if the reason there's a lack of school discipline is because there's a lack of home discipline. I talked to, you know, I've talked to a couked to a teachers over the years, and, and you talk about kids being disobedient and, and doing things, and they bring the parents in, and they understand why. Because parents, they don't care. Sadly, not only did Micah's mother not correct him, but she actually led him into idolatry, making two idols for his son. She was confused, saved the leak. It's like, you know, if we say, oh, Micah, uh, you, you know, I know you stole from me, but, but here's a Nintendo Switch for you. Have a good day. Now, uh, Micah's mom not only refused to discipline him, she wasn't doing any, him, any favors by giving him an idol. You know, we see this past with, with them. Of course, the law of God was clear. Leviticus 26, 1 says this, You shall not make idols for yourself, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear it for yourselves, nor shall you set up in a gravestone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. So here's the, the pitiful situation in the house. A son who steals, a mother who doesn't punish, an entire family of superstitious idolaters who think that they're pleasing to the Lord. Well, then it gets worse. Look at verse 5. The man Micah had a shrine and made an ephod and a household idols, and he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. So the word for shrine here is, uh, by yith, which means house, the same word that was used in verse 4 describing the house of Micah. So Micah has, has made a house inside his house for his gods to stay in. So the shrine, it may have been very beautiful, it may have become a type of tourist attraction, but God hated it. It was a homemade worship of, uh, of a man-made God. 
Now what made this so terrible is that it wasn't just the worship of false gods like Baal. Rather, he was trying to worship the true God through the idols that they made. Much like, sad to say, the Catholic Church does today, attempting to worship God through the man-made idols they have made. Listen, when God condemns idolatry, He not only forbids the worship of false gods, He forbids the worship of a true God through images and statues. Why? Well, because they rob God of His glory. Listen, no one likes a bad picture of themselves. When I see a picture of me when I was 17 or 18 years old and I have my disco clothes on and a perm hair and super bell bottoms and and platform shoes and a polyester suit and I go, oh, please, we don't need to see that. Let's tear that up, okay? Because nobody likes weird pictures of ourselves. But listen, no picture, no image, no statue can properly honor God. No likeness of any created thing can possibly come close to the nature of God. It always amazes me that people will focus on carved pieces of wood or a piece of metal and they worship it. Oh, it's a statue of Mary or even a Buddha. You know, it's ridiculous. Now, that's not just my opinion. It's God's as well. Listen to what he said to Isaiah in Isaiah 44, 13 through 19. He says, a man shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. So it goes on to say, of the same wood he burns, some to keep warm, some to break bread, some to call as God and worship. But the Lord says this in Isaiah 44:19: No one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on the coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Just showing how ridiculous idolatry is. Yet it continues today. People worshiping the you know, statues of Mary and Jesus and Peter and Joseph. You know, I, I heard there's a, there's a statue of, of Peter that, that his big toe has been kissed off. And so many times people have kissed his big toe. So Micah doesn't stop with, re, with re, his religiosity, his idolatry. Now he wants the robes too. We read in verse 5, he made an ephod. And that's what the, the priest wore in, in the temple. It was an apron-like garment that, that they wore. But he gives it to his son, ordains him to be the priest of the house in verse 5. So now he's got his own priest to go into his house of idols, his own little church, never ordained by God, never called by God to do this, just doing his own thing. You now we see a lot of that going on nowadays. I Google searched, I probably shouldn't have, but ordinations online, and I got 52,500,000 hits. One that reminded me of what Michael was doing was called Spiritual Humanism Online Ordinations. It said this, You can become an ordained member of the spiritual humanist clergy for free right now. As a legally ordained clergy member, you can legally perform religious ceremonies and rituals like weddings, funerals, benedictions, etc. As spiritual humanists, we believe that every person has innate right to make a spiritual connection to the rest of the cosmos. We facilitate this through our free online ordination program, our premise is simple. We can solve the problems of society using a religion based on reason. If you agree that religion must be based on reason, you can be ordained right now for free and be still able to practice your own religious traditions by simply clicking the button below. So this isn't new. You know, as far as I can tell, Micah is the one who started this, but, but you know, we just see it going on and on. He starts his own worship center, he ordains his son, and he ripped off his mom. How can he do this? Well, this brings us back to verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No king sitting on the throne. They're not recognizing God as king. 
And again, unfortunately, this is a good summation of the direction our own society is heading. Again, moral relativism is teaching the younger generation because there's no God. There's no moral absolutes, and hence there's no right or wrong. We just need to do whatever we think is right. The Bible warns us against that. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way which seems right to man, but it ends in the way of death. It's a scary thing to, to think about the way that mankind has justified, made justified decisions in our history. Things that seemed right. Oh, this is the right thing to do, but it's horribly, awfully wrong and evil because everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Now in verse 7, we come to Levite who's, who's doing what is right in his own eyes. Look at verse 7. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah. He was a Levite and was staying there. The man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. Then he came to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, as he journeyed. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? So he said to him, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem and Judah, and I'm on my way, I'm on my way to find a place to stay. Micah said to him, Dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes, and your sustenance. So the Levite went in. So <laughs> he's building up his own little church. <laughs> this wandering Levite who left Bethlehem, Judah. Now there's nothing wrong with, with wanting to better yourself. Yet for a Levite moving from place to place, that was wrong because God gave them specific cities they were to stay at and serve the Lord. So this Levite, this man shouldn't have been roaming around and in reality should have not been in Bethlehem in the first place. That was not a Levitical city. But this man also was doing what he thought was right in his own eyes and this was self-promotion. But to make matters worse, according to God's law, only sons of Aaron from the tribe of Levite could serve as priests, not from the tribe of Judah. So, so he's an unqualified Levite. But Micah decides that, hey, son of Aaron or not, doesn't matter. I got a Levite. I'm going to bring him into my house. So he hires him on the spot. Levite was looked at by Micah as some good luck charm more than anything else. Verse 11, the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as a priest. What a mess. Again, a complete lack of knowledge in regarding the ways of God that Micah believed that he's worshiping. This is not the tabernacle of God. This is not a priest of God. And these idols are forbidden by God. The entire situation is grieving to the Lord. Now, there'd be those that say, well, you know, he's trying to worship the Lord and the only way he knows how. Isn't it good enough? Does God really care if we worship him correctly or not? Absolutely, he does. It's our responsibility to know what God has commanded, that we know how He desires us to be and how He insists that He be worshipped. God said this to Isaiah in Isaiah 5.13, Therefore my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge, and their honorable men are famished, and their multitudes is parched with thirst. He said in Hosea, Hosea 4.6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because of rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. See, a lack of knowledge can destroy you when it leads you to believe you have a relationship with God when you really don't have a relationship with God. When you think by doing certain religious duties that will assure your right relationship with God. Jesus put it this way in Matthew seven twenty one through 23 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
So Jesus is saying that, that there will come a day where there will be many that will stand before God believing they're saved. Believing through the works that they did, the things that they have done, they, they, that, that, that their religion somehow saved them. But God says that, that religion is not going to save you. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. So, some exciting chapters. You know, we looked at Samson giving into the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, but repenting and seeing a God who forgives and restores compared to a man who thinks by doing certain religious practices that makes him right before God. Well, this is going to go from bad to worse, and we don't have time this evening to go into it, but we'll see next time as Micah and his little homemade church is going to be ripped off, and suddenly the sin is going to spread as Israel continues to do what is right in their own eyes. Let me say this again. The story of Samson reminds us you can start out strong and finish poorly. You can start out weak but finish strong. The story of Micah tells us you can start out poorly and finish poorly. <laughs> but, but, but the story for us is to start out strong, finish strong, as we depend upon the Lord to strengthen us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time tonight, Lord. Thank you for these, these history lessons that are recorded for us in your word. Lord, because it gives us a clear picture of what not to do and what to do. Lord, to see uh, where sin leads. Lord, where idolatry leads to. We're looking to, your, to, to doing what is right in our own eyes leads to, Lord. It leads to a mess and confusion and corruption and idolatry and religiosity. Lord, help us to stay true to your word. Lord, to follow you wholeheartedly and your word. Not turn to the left or turn to the right. To be men and women that know your word. Help us to resist temptation, Lord. To resist the devil, your word says it. And he will flee from us. Draw near to God and he will draw near to us. Lord, help us to do that daily, hourly, Lord. Minute by minute in our lives. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit working in and through us, Lord. We pray your, your strength Get us through to the end of the week, Lord. We can meet again on Sunday. Help us to be an example of what it means to, to follow you and all that we do and say. To you be the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand